Hello, listeners, and welcome to the 10th episode of the Always Drive podcast, your weekly look at the latest news from the car, truck, and motorcycle industries, where we take ourselves about as seriously as we do the threat of our microwaves recording our every move. I'm your host, Devlin Riggs, and I'm sorry to be getting this out late again this week. Uh, Every week I shoot for a Thursday night publication, but the past couple of weeks have been uh, pretty tough. Uh, You subscribers who aren't my friends and family will not know that my wife and I have two rescue dogs. One's a Pembroke Welsh Corgi, and the other's a Corgi-Pug Hybrid. Uh, He's actually no longer the only hybrid in our house after my wife's Fusion Energy joined the stable. Uh, Anyway, uh, we continue to work with this uh, rescue agency who needed help fostering a dog that we think is a Border Collie-Basset Hound mix. Well, he apparently got the Border Collie energy, plus he's only eight months old, so he has that and puppy brain, so he's been keeping us on our toes and me away from my computer and this podcast for the past couple of weeks. Fortunately, it sounds like he's getting close to his forever home, which is great news for him and great for my sanity and my schedule. Anyway, I'm still suffering a bit from a wicked Geneva Motor Show car news hangover, and just like for normal hangovers, I hear the best cure is to keep the party going, so let's jump right into the news. First up this week, uh, Fiat Chrysler America Chief Sergio Maricone mentioned to the press uh, various potential partnerships last week, specifically with GM, which was quickly shot down, and then with VW, which was not immediately shot down. Uh, Poor quoting of VW CEO Matthias Müller led some people to believe that he was open to a partnership with the Fiat Chrysler Group. Uh, when what he actually said was that he was not interested and that VW is too preoccupied with the the whole fallout from uh, the company's Dieselgate scandal. The confusion apparently came when a translator bungled a snippy comment from Mueller about Maricone needing to speak with Mueller directly rather than through the press. This gave the impression that VW is open to speaking about a partnership at all, uh, when the clarification was made public, Maricone walked back his comments about a potential VW partnership blatantly trying to cover up the fact that he's trying to get rid of his dumpster fire of a car company. The whole thing is just just a little too high school. Uh, it's like when you're a geek and you don't have a date to the prom, but then you heard from Sean that Stephanie, who is totally awesome, might actually be into you. So you mentioned to Braxton that you'd totally go to the prom with Stephanie if she wanted to go with you. And then Jason overheard you, and he told Stephanie is so totally still going out with Daniel and that you have no chance with her. So your only option is to be like, well, yeah, I knew that. I don't actually like her like her, but, you know, I'd do her the favor of going to prom with her if, if that's what she wanted. That's all I meant. Anyway, that's, that's Sergio Maricone right now. Um, at a rally in Michigan this week, Trump uh, said, quote, we're setting up a task force in every federal agency to identify and remove any regulation that undermines American auto production. This quote is so general and ambiguous that we don't really know what regulation undermining automotive production in America he means. Does he mean emissions? Does he mean safety? Um, He actually said, we're going to work on the cafe standards so you can make cars in America again. 
and that there's no be- more beautiful sight than an American-made car. So does he mean that they're going to eliminate emissions from automotive plants? According to Edmonds, 53.4% of vehicles sold at retail in the U.S. last year were made at a U.S. plant. So it's certainly not the case that we cannot make cars in America right now. Uh, in comparison, 10.9% of cars originated from Japan, 106 from Mexico, 105 from Canada, and then down from there with South Korea and Germany uh, contributing very few cars. It's important to note that just because... Uh, things will be reviewed, not that we know what's going to be reviewed, it doesn't mean that any rules will be weakened. Car manufacturers have already been planning on these rules going into effect, so they've started the ball rolling on developments that make cars cleaner, which may not be turned around, but that's certainly not the way it sounds like from Trump's speeches. Uh, So the EPA actually instituted the current corporate average fuel economy, or CAFE, standards, after conducting two years of research under Obama's administration. And the current regulations was the most logical course of action they could come up with to both uh, save manufacturers money while also improving vehicle technology and reducing emissions. Uh, The good thing is that there are still a lot of smart people at the EPA who will be reviewing these regulations, or at least there are until Trump's proposed budget goes into effect, destroys a third of their budget, and lays off 20% of their workforce that will help make the air we breathe clean and less cancerous. Um, Trump also has said he's not going to roll back California's own unique standards, which 13 states follow. So if the federal government weakens regulations while California's remains high, that will actually make things more difficult for car manufacturers having to design vehicles for two markets within the same country. California agreed in 2012 to bring their regulations in line with the Obama administration's fuel economy goals. So manufacturers were already headed towards a single common rule book before. Um, Now it sounds like they may have to go back to having California regulations and U.S. federal regulations. But time will tell how this will all play out, but it might become pretty messy in the meanwhile. Not uh, content to just let states have their own say, cities have also, uh, 30 cities, including New York City and Chicago, have asked automakers uh, to put together an estimate and a feasibility study of providing as many as 114,000 electric vehicles according to Bloomberg, which is uh, the equivalent of uh, 72% of total plug-in sales uh, for last year alone. Um, The city suggested that the vehicles could be used to replace police cruisers, street sweepers, and trash haulers, which are pretty specialized machines. Uh, And some are seeing this as sort of a slap in the face to Trump's reopening of the cafe standards. And this is really nothing more than just a first step in a very long multi-phase request for proposal type of process that may wind up replacing some municipal vehicles. Now, I know New York already has hybrid Altima and Fusion police cars, so going to EVs and plug-ins is the next logical step. Um, There's nothing for sure right now, and this is probably more of a symbolic move than anything else, but uh, if anything comes to fruition, it's probably only going to make car chases significantly more boring. So let's maybe hope for against that. Um, <clears throat> Intel this week spent $15 billion. And if Intel sounds unrelated to car business, it's because they 
bought autonomous driving company Mobileye. Um, so surely if Intel is willing to splash that kind of cash on a company, they must see really tremendous value in it. Um, they, however, are not the only company uh, playing in the autonomous driving game with NVIDIA and Bosch partnering uh, and playing a big part in addition to the car manufacturers themselves. Uh, it seems like it may be the race to the finish line here in terms of who gets to the market first and who sets the standards by which other companies have to operate or comply, but there are actually a lot of different situations where different companies could win while working in parallel towards similar goals. Um, there are obviously, uh, first of all, degrees to autonomy, with Tesla's autopilot being mostly autonomous beta system requiring some human input. Uh, we also have radar and laser-guided cruise control, which takes over a lot of the highway driving tasks while still requiring a driver to steer and watch where the hell they're going. Uh, these systems, uh, they'll be refined over time and pare back the amount of input required from the human driver in order to get to a destination. But the level to which they're pared back um, will we'll sort of see over time which ends up being the more dominant technology. Bosch themselves say that they're working on three different levels of autonomy within the own, their own company. So when will we see autonomous cars? That question is, is a lot more unclear. Um, it, and it depends on who you ask. Some say as early as 2025. Some say it's going to take longer. But uh, we're certain that it will happen before Skynet comes online in 2047. Uh, Renault this week has been accused again by investigators of cheating diesel emissions tests um, for as many as 25 years, uh, according to a French newspaper. Um, the French Consumer Protection Agency, uh, catchily named the G DGCCRF, has uh, said that alongside uh, faking emissions tests, the uh, uh, Renault has uh, implicated its executives uh, have been aware of, of these things. So... Nissan Renault, of course, maintains their innocence and called, called, called the report unbalanced, which I thought was a, a strange choice of words. Um, but this is the second time this year that this has come up, but still no evidence has been presented beyond these simple allegations. But since we live in a post-truth world now, maybe no facts are necessary, and all it will take is a fabricated story from some Macedonian teens to bring down one of the world's largest car companies. Uh, in racing news, regular listeners might remember I talked recently about Formula One changing hands and finally getting out from under the oppressive iron grip of Bernie Ecclestone. Uh, Liberty Media, who bought the race series, have really come out swinging, talking about the future of F1 and really taking no prisoners uh, when it comes to discussing the way the organization was run under uh, King Bernie. President and CEO Greg Maffey, 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 said, I think it's our, he said, quote, I think it's our job to do far more to help promoters be successful. Frankly, Bernie's attitude was, how much can I extract from them? I heard him call them the victims. How much can I extract? How much up front? So we end up with races in places like Baku and Azerbaijan, where they paid us a big race fee, but it does nothing to build the long-term brand and health of the business. Our job is to find partners who will pay us well, but also help us to build the product. 
at end quote. This will likely mean fewer races in far-off lands like Azerbaijan that are expensive to get to for uh, viewers, expensive to attend, and uh, we'll start seeing more races in accessible places like Texas, where the fans don't have to be shakes to watch firsthand. Um, It'll take a while, though, before any of this can take place, since races like Baku are under contract for usually about 10 years, but it's a really positive sign for F1 that uh, Liberty is talking about building the brand and involving the fans rather than just uh, trying to fatten the pockets of the executives moving forward. When I say the name Faraday Future, it probably conjures up images of sweeping up pages of legal documents and being whisked away to to court. Uh, But this week, they actually haven't been sued. Uh, Yes, it's actually because of those lawsuits, though, that Le Echo, the company that owns Faraday Future, has sold off a huge plot of land in the U.S. to another Chinese company for funds likely to pay settlements in the lawsuits that have been brought against them by contractors that they've hired. It purchased this land from Yahoo uh, just about a year ago, so it's unclear if this is cursed land that no company can stay on without going out of business, or if that's just a handy coincidence. In any case, Faraday Future saw a tidy $10 million profit in just a year of ownership, so maybe they're better off entering the real estate game than the electric car business. Uh, Speaking of electric cars, but actual real ones, Volvo uh, has announced some information about their first electric vehicle. Um, they say it'll start between thirty-five and 40000 when it debuts in 2019 because, of course, they have to be several years behind every other car company. Um, it will be capable of 250 miles at least between charges, which is uh, sort of uh, what we're seeing is the industry standard coming up. Uh, there's still no idea what it'll look like, but it'll probably just be a reconfiguration of an existing model, maybe an XC40 or XC60, or less likely because of the death of midsize sedans, the S60. Uh, the company has also said that they're working on a modular electrification platform uh, that would be the basis for all future EVs, and that would be scalable for anything from compact cars and hatchbacks like the A3 um, plug-in or uh, larger SUVs. And I love this quote from Volvo America CEO Lex Kersamakers. They said, "We are. Why are people reluctant to buy a fuel elect a full electric car? It's between the ears. It's that they believe there's not sufficient range, or Lex, it's because they're too expensive for what you get, and yours aren't, isn't on the market yet. Get to it, Lex." Um, uh, and up for other European cars, uh, clearly Car and Driver listened to my deep dive segment last week because they featured a story this week on how BMW and Mercedes have too many car models, a fact that the manufacturers have apparently admitted to. Uh, this has led to some confusion. These uh, uh, too many models have led to buyer confusion, and the brands have admitted that they will need to pare back moving forward. Uh, Good, you say. Your deep dive worked, you say. Wrong, I say. Apparently, the models trimmed will be coupes and convertibles, not the super sub-niches filled by coupe sedan monstrosities. 
BMW has an X2 compact crossover and a gargantuan X7 SUV coming. So those, quote, specialty cars, which Mercedes boss Dieter Zicci admits were always niche cars, will start to fall by the wayside. Honestly, it's not a terrible thing for Mercedes especially. We don't need coupe and convertible versions of the C, E, and S classes, which feature alongside the SL, the SLK, and the AMG GT. But uh, we are losing the freedom of choice that I sort of celebrated last week, so that is a bummer. Uh, Finally this week, there was a really fascinating read in the automotive news this week, which uh, took note of the several station wagons that debuted in Geneva, or as Europeans uh, call them, estates. Uh, They put together some analysis on the subject, and it's a great read, so I encourage you to look it up if you're at all into wagons. The gist, though, is that we may start seeing a wagon renaissance as SUV fatigue sets in. Manufacturers are hearing feedback from buyers that they want wagons, and there's a steady demand, but there are so few wagons for sale in the U.S. that supply has actually been limiting sales, not buyer interest. Uh, A total of uh, about 77,000 wagons sold last year in the U.S., which was a 16% drop from 2011, which, again, is down to lack of supply, with Cadillac, Mercedes, and BMW being a few of the only brands to offer wagons, and theirs are considerably out of the price range of many consumers. In fact, we went from having 17 wagon options in 2011 to just seven last year, and those seven vehicles managed to nab almost 80,000 sales. So another observation from the auto execs um, in Geneva was that wagon customers are some of the best in the business. They're more educated, they're more affluent, um, which they have to be to be able to afford the BMW and the Mercedes and the Cadillac, Um, and they're more loyal. They tick all the real desirability boxes for manufacturers, and manufacturers aren't doing enough to earn that loyalty. Um, They also said that the uh, average wagon buyer is slightly more male and more sports-oriented, which uh, sort of dispels the soccer mom station wagon cliche that uh, we've had for for decades. Um, of course, we have the Subaru Outback and the VW Alltrack, which are you know sporty off-road sort of active lifestyle crowd utility wagons, uh, which have more accessible roof racks because they're lower than SUVs and have decent handling while still maintaining a healthy ride height. It'll be interesting to see if this actually results in more wagons coming to the market, and it really flies in the face of the industry predictions that SUV sales will continue to climb as a percentage of the whole of the market. But we'll just have to wait and see. As a wagon fan myself, I really hope this comes true, but time will tell. Uh, Let's jump right in now to some new cars. First up this week is the NEO EP9. Uh, it debuted at South by Southwest um, because nothing is not a car show anymore. Um, this EV supercar has autonomous technology and allegedly it's beaten the Circuit of the Americas and the Nürburgring lap records with and without a driver. 
Um, though the asterisk on that record is that they were using very sticky racing slicks, whereas normally these records are set with the tires that the cars are sold with. Um, refreshingly, the Neo EP9 will not be sold with the autonomous tech that helped it set these lap times, because as the uh, company representatives say, supercars are meant to be driven, which is obviously a nice sentiment. Uh, the autonomous tech will instead be used in commuter and passenger cars. Neo says they've uh, finished and sold three EP9s already, and currently plans to build six, though um, if there ends up being more demand, it could convince them to build more. Uh, they cost about $1.2 million to build, though they didn't say how much they actually charge to buy them. Uh, it's a, a really cool-looking car and has some really neat technology, so I'm hoping that uh, this sort of makes its way out into the public consciousness a little more. Uh, another EV company that you probably haven't heard of made news with the announcement of a 1,000-horsepower car a while back, um, uh, but they said that you won't have to shell out hundred grand just to get a vehicle from them. Um, this is Lucid Motors talking about their Air EV. Uh, there's apparently going to be a base model vehicle with 400 horsepower, um, setting aside the fact that 400 is a ton of horsepower for a base car. Uh, it's only going to cost about 52 grand after federal tax incentives. They say that the range will be around 240 miles, which, like I said, starting to become sounding industry standard. But uh, the options for the uh, vehicle in terms of like battery size could extend the range to 300 or 400 miles. And then it goes all the way up to the twin uh, motor model that has the 1,000 horsepower and all-wheel drive that will uh, you know, throw you back in your seat in sanity mode style. Um, and prices really start to climb there. Uh, as is, the base car is about 20 grand less than the um, cheapest Tesla Model S with which this would compete. And Jalopnik apparently drove the 1,000 horsepower model and said it was fantastic. So uh, let's all pull for Lucid Motors and hope that they can follow through on their promises. Um, you know, a little more competition in the EV game can only be a good thing. Um, this next car is sort of the opposite of an electric vehicle. Uh, it's the Dodge Challenger SRT Demon. Now, this car has sort of been out there in teasers and clips for a while, but I haven't really talked about it. It's basically a hardcore Hellcat meant for drag racing. Uh, Dodge decided that 707 horsepower was not enough and that they needed launch control to tackle the drag strip, which is just mental. I, I can't figure out who's going to buy this car. Uh, a Fiat Chrysler vehicle, so you know it's going to be made like shit, and it's going to be unreliable, but gosh, it's going to be quick. Um, in much more probably reliable news, Lexus has debuted a new compact crossover called the UX, which will slot in under the NX, which is also a compact crossover. And it's basically just another tiny jacked-up hatchback with a futuristic interior and a bunch of sharp angles in the bodywork, and that's all I really care to say about yet another goddamn compact crossover. Um, the Hyundai Sonata debuted this week in Seoul, South Korea to much fanfare, except that's not at all true, because this is probably the first you've heard of it. It's, it's a fine car. It offers 
evolutionary styling changes, basically the same performance. And the real problem with it is that the mid-sized sedan market is dying a very fast death. And at the same time, the problem with the mid-sized sedan market is exactly the new Hyundai Sonata. It's not exciting. It's not different. It's not special. And it's not exactly super desirable over, say, a Mazda CX-5, which is a compact crossover. Uh, It's somewhat easier to climb into and out of, but it's a boring value proposition. And I can't see it turning around sales in this segment. Um, something that uh, will hope to bring more sales to Fiat Chrysler, though, is a Jeep Wrangler Hybrid. Uh, Jeep, the only bright star in the black hole that is the Fiat Chrysler Galaxy, is getting a new Wrangler for 2018. And FCA has said that there will be a hybrid version in their quest to make the 2008 model a Jeep for everyone. Uh, apart from, of course, people with bad backs or who want remotely decent handling vehicles or nice interiors or reliability. Um, Jeep hasn't decided uh, the degree to which they want the hybrid to be electrified, but they have ruled out uh, a completely electric vehicle Wrangler. Given that the vehicle is meant to go on sale next year, which means a reveal later this year, it seems awfully late in the game for Fiat Chrysler to be waffling on what type of hybrid system they want to put in this car. Um, More than anything else, this is probably just more evidence why they are doing so well in all of the Consumer Reports rankings. Remind me where Jeep landed? Yes, second to last. Uh, In obituaries this week, um, it's sad to announce the death of the Alpina A110, which was uh, just announced recently. Um, It is not technically dead, but they have announced that it's not coming to America, so it's dead to me. Now it's time for our deep dive. Autocar columnist Matt Pryor posed the question this week, if the new Ferrari 812 Superfast had too much power, with almost 800 prancing horses underneath its long, attractive, lightweight bonnet. Where does it stop, he asked. It's a valid question, but I want to discuss the Goldilocks horsepower zone. What amount is not too hard, not too soft, but just right? There's obviously a lot that goes into this, uh, chief among them power-to-weight ratio. For example, the Toyota Yaris has 107 horsepower and a 0-60 to time of about 10 seconds, but my motorcycle, a 1996 Triumph Trident, has at least 100 horsepower after the exhaust intake and jet I performed and would tear my bloody arms off if I ever wound it up to full speed. It actually has the same power-to-weight ratio as a McLaren MP412C, and probably about the same reliability, both being made in England. The point is, though, that this is an inexact science, and my opinion of what works won't necessarily apply to everything. For some historical context, let's take a trip back to a simpler time, when gas was cheap, cars had fewer ridiculous body styles, and there were still manufacturing jobs in the U.S. I'm talking about 1989. Well, in 1988... 
Japan's road fatalities exceeded 10,000 annually, and manufacturers were under pressure to reduce road deaths, or at least look like they were trying to do so. Starting the following year, Japanese vehicle manufacturers established a gentleman's agreement not to produce or at least advertise cars as having more than 276 horsepower. This allegedly was to prevent a horsepower war that would drive up development costs across the Japanese auto industry and also seemed sensible given the top speed anyone could legally drive in Japan was 100 kilometers an hour or just about 62 miles per hour. Why would you need more power to get to 62 faster? The Europeans obviously did not abide by this agreement and produced cars with much more power, but the Japanese manufacturers continued to gobble up market share in the U.S. and abroad, so they saw little reason to abandon the agreement. In fact, it lasted 16 years and was broken by, of all companies, Honda, who introduced the Acura RL in 2005 with a mind-blowing 24 more horsepower than the first than the agreement stipulated. It's important to note, though, that just because the RL was the first car in 16 years to be advertised with more than 276 horsepower, that it was most certainly not the first car to produce that much power. Everything from Mitsubishi Evolutions and Subaru WRXs to the Nissan 300ZX, the Nissan GTR, and the Toyota Supra actually put down more power, but they only ever advertised 276 to preserve the harmony in the industry. Safety had also improved by 2005, so manufacturers saw no reason to continue playing by arbitrary rules to appear safer to the public. 2005 also saw the introduction of the Bugatti Veyron, the first big luxury car to cross the 1,000 horsepower threshold, and it's now being succeeded by the Bugatti Huron, which makes almost 1,500 horsepower. Cars from Mercedes and BMWs to Chevys and Dodges now make more than 700 horsepower from the factory, and while there's been an increasing focus on extracting more power from smaller engines, the fact remains that manufacturers have steadily been dumping more and more power into vehicles in recent years. How much of that power is usable, though, is a very different story. A Dodge Challenger Hellcat may be a blast to run on the drag strip and sweet to rip burnouts in, but I think it'd be tough getting four miles per gallon and constantly having to replace my rear rubber. Getting traction and cornering when it's raining would also probably be terrifying. On the opposite side of the token, surviving with a 107-horsepower Toyota Yaris would be equally terrifying. Entering into an elevated highway and being able to merge with traffic going 70 miles an hour would be tough, not to mention dangerous. There is such a thing as needing power to get out of trouble, whether it's accelerating to pass a dangerous driver or getting out of the way of a wreck. I frequently find that in stop-and-go traffic, the 150 horsepower in my Mazda hatchback is insufficient to keep me from being passed on the right by impatient drivers, waiting for my economy-tuned, sky-active motor to decide it wants to turn the wheels with any alacrity. There's, there has to be some middle ground. And like I said, it won't work for everything, but I think there's a level of power that will work for most things. 150 horsepower in a three-row SUV is going to create a very different experience than it does in the Toyota FT86. But if both those cars had 300 horsepower, the SUV would be perfectly capable, and the Toyota would be a dream come true for enthusiasts. 
Even in my somewhat fat Infiniti G35, it's 286 horsepower was more than enough to keep up with traffic, pass when I needed to, and get up to a healthy and smile-inducing speed. So despite the fact that it's no longer being honored, I think the Japanese manufacturers had it almost just right with their gentleman's agreement. 300 horsepower is a prime balance between enough power to have fun and be safe without shredding tires, sending you spinning into a ditch, or making you a ballistic missile in traffic. Car makers will still keep producing ridiculously high horsepower cars, and idiot drivers will still try to extract their full potential on, on public roads, but I'll be happy with my 300 horsepower. Where it stops is a question I'll just leave to Matt Pryor. Now let's kick it over to our broadcast partners, the Post-Truth Channel News. This is PTC News. Jaguar this week announced plans to once again expand the lineup of crossover vehicles by borrowing technology from parent company Indian auto manufacturer Tata. As a follow-up to the company's recent F-Pace, I-Pace and E-Pace vehicles, CEO Dr. Ralph Dieter Speth announced the addition of the Meh-Pace. The vehicle will essentially be a rebadged Tata Nano city car, but riding on 20-inch wheels and featuring a 6-inch lift kit. When queried about the choice of name, Speth said, quote, Our development team reproached me with the issue that our crossovers are selling faster than we can get them into showrooms. They recommended simply rebadging the Nano because car buyers don't much care what the car looks like or feels like to drive, and we can create some tremendous profit margin through badge engineering. So I said, meh, why not? And the name stuck. End quote. The vehicle will carry an MSRP of £70,000 and go on sale next week. Following their rejection by General Motors and Volkswagen, Fiat Chrysler have embraced the post-truth world and begun issuing press releases and hosting news conferences featuring their own alternative facts on their vehicle's consumer reports ratings. President Sergio Maricone now insists that the Fiat 500 is the most reliable vehicle in the history of the world, period, and that the Jeep Grand Wagoneer has sold out before going on sale because it is more popular than the Toyota Highlander, more luxurious than the Bentley Bentayga, and more fuel-efficient than a European Swallow. In response, fellow champions of alternative facts Mitsubishi coyly said, Oh, really? Details on a partnership remain scarce. Finally this week, it's St. Patrick's Day, which means drunken hooligans the world over will pretend to be Irish and chase rainbows. Fortunately, instead of a pot of gold, they will find Formula One driver Kimi Raikkonen, who will graciously drive them back to their apartment. That's all from PTC News. Uh, Thanks to our broadcast partner, PTC News, for that update. Uh, since today is St. Patrick's Day, uh, I thought instead of a call to action, I would leave you with a limerick about my last episode. Uh, so, to set the mood, here is a little uh, festive music. Uh, here goes. There once was a podcasting lad whose raps about cars were real bad. He said that he's done, the critics have won, and all of his listeners were glad. And with that, thank you for listening, and thanks to Nicholas Falcon for our intro song. Uh, Since I haven't covered it recently uh, and decided to this week, I will leave you with the insane sound of the Dodge Challenger Demon. Here is your moment of zen. (laughs) 